Good evening, everybody. I'm uh, Eric Holzenberg, uh, director of the Builder Club. I want to welcome all of the Rare Book School participants and uh, our other guests uh, this evening to a Rare Book School lecture. Um, I'm going to turn the podium over to the new director of Rare Book School, Michael Suarez, who will introduce our speaker this evening. Um, this is sort of a funny arrangement, but it's, it's nice to be here and nice to see so many friendly faces. Um, we, we have a real anomaly here this evening in that the newest member of the Grolier Club is introducing the president of the Grolier Club. <laughs> this seems to be somehow to be a, a, a pressing irony that we can't avoid acknowledging. Um, but before us, we have a man who's a great collector, as you know, a, a prince of so-called ephemera, trade cards, street guides, books played, sheet music, uh, and the like. Um, I've noticed in, in looking over some aspects of Bill's collection that um, there is a disturbing frequency of cluster pipes. I'm not really sure what to make out of this, but uh, but look again and again and again, and there the cluster pipe appears. Um, Bill's collecting has led to a life of scholarship. Five books, scores of articles, a number of extremely important exhibitions, but, but more than the scholarship, or in addition to the scholarship, his life of collecting has led to conspicuous philanthropy. The Philadelphia Museum of Art, the Library Company of Philadelphia, uh, the National Library of Medicine, and other institutions all have benefited from his largesse. Um, he's accumulated many honors in his time, including the Samuel Pepys Medal from the Ephemeris Society of the United Kingdom, and the Morris Rickards Award from the Ephemeris Society of America. I myself am filled with admiration and more than a bit of envy, not because of these awards, but because who else could have authored a book entitled Quack, Quack, Quack? The book is not, as some of you may imagine, about Donald Duck's nephews, Huey, Dewey, and Louie, but rather about, you remember them, don't you? But rather, it's, it's about quackery and fakery uh, in medicine. Um, so through his collecting, through his scholarship, through his philanthropy, Bill Helfand is a man who has taught us that even that which is called ephemeral has lasting truths to teach us. I hope that you'll join me this evening in welcoming our speaker, William H. Helfand, who will talk to us today about what a print collection can teach us. Bill. Thank you, Michael, for that lovely introduction. I will be part of the love to it and not set a new and lower standard. <laughs> if you can hear me in the back. said, talk this evening is about uh, 
the experiences of a print collector who's been doing this for more than 50 years. I realize that Riverwood School is primarily dealing with book collections, but there is a place for works on paper, as there is at the Goyer Club, where we have committees both dealing with the library of books and also drawings and photographs. Now my interest uh, as a print collector began when I was a student at the Barnes Foundation and wanted to emulate the way I put that collection together and collect paintings, but the uh, amount of money that the paintings cost was beyond me, so I began with prints. And shortly after this, while I was working for a pharmaceutical company, I found a print um, uh, from a British book dealer that had something to do with uh, pharmacy, which was one Captain Ludgate, somebody who worked with a militia, who was there with a mortar and a pestle. And I thought, well, that's interesting, and perhaps there are more such uh, works on paper that uh, deal with medical subjects, and I'll, I'd like to begin to look for them and try to focus the collection. This is been more than 50 years ago, and I've been at it ever since. Uh, there is no bibliography in this field, and the consequence is there are surprises all the time and because I don't exactly know what's out there. Just last Thursday in Bristol, England, I went to visit a book dealer who had a number of prints, and I found six which I bought from him, five of which I had never seen before. They were, they were mostly British, but almost Dutch. And who knows what is in there? There are many different aspects of the, uh, the collection I put together that I could talk about. Um, and I thought it would be good if we could focus on just one thing and go from there. And what I, wanted, what I do want to talk about is how the prints show the difference between good and bad positions. I don't want to define what I mean by good and bad positions because that definition would have changed over the years. A good position in the 18th century would probably not be such a good position now, and vice versa. And the title of the talk is The Company of Undertakers, and that is the name of a print that Hogarth, William Hogarth, did in 1736. Uh, the print shows positions of all stripes. At the top are three quacks. At the bottom are legitimate physicians, the faculty who were practicing medicine in London. And what Hogarth is saying in this image that, that looks like a coat of arms is that the people high up, the quacks, are more important than the people below, the authentic established physicians. And at the time, 1736, there wasn't much difference between what would happen to you if you were treated by a quack or by a regular physician. Not so much was known. The number of uh, products that really worked were few. And since the quacks could read the pharmacopoeias and other medical books as well as the physicians, many of them were selling the same types of product that the physicians themselves were. They provided competition. Uh, the three individuals at the top were unknown. Whereas at the bottom, although many people have tried to figure out who they were, according to who were the physicians practicing in London in the 1720s and 1730s, it's almost impossible to do. Those at the bottom, 
each had their gold-headed cane, at the top of which is some palmander or sweet-smelling herbs that the physicians would use when they would go to visit the sick room of some of their patients where the smell would be too bad. And if you're inhaling the, the fragrant herbs instead of the smell, it's far better for you. The cracks uh, at the top, three of them, um, the one at the left is uh, John Taylor, an ophthalmologist. The one in the middle is Sarah Knapp, a bone setter. The one on the right is a man whose name is Scott Ward, who offered a pill and a drop that contained antimony, um, which he said was good for almost everything. This is Joshua Ward, who was born with a disfigured face, which is why he got the name Scott. Uh, he was very successful. And of the three at the top, he was the only one that was really a quack doctor uh, offering these products that he, he, he sold throughout the United Kingdom. The uh, bone center, the woman in the middle, Sarah Mathis, handsome woman, uh, was really providing a service. You, if you got a fracture and needed, needed it to be set, her powerful shoulders and arms would do the trick. She came from a family of bone centers and was, I think, physically well-formed to do this. And the one on the left, at the top, it was John Taylor, known as Chevalier Taylor, who was not a quack in a sense because he had had a very good medical education. The Gordy Club had a talk uh, about two years ago by an ophthalmologist from Wisconsin, Dan Albert, who came and told us about the training Taylor had had in the 18th century and about his writings and what he was able to accomplish. He did many good things for people with cataracts at a time when there was no anesthesia. And obviously, if you had a cataract that was going blind, there's not much you could do. But he had techniques. Uh, he was what is known as a coucher. He couched the cataracts. He would, what he would do would be break up the lens eye which was causing the blindness and remove it. When he was good, he was very, very good, and when he was bad, he was horrid. And at times, um, some people like Handel, the musician, the composer, went blind as a result of treatments he got from Taylor. But nonetheless, Hogarth was trying to distinguish between good physicians and bad physicians, and to him, the quacks were better than the regular physicians. But in the 18th century, there were many other prints that were used for the same purpose. Uh, the, print, the print sellers offered pairs of prints, uh, mezzotinses of wool, sometimes engravings, showing the benevolent position, as in this print, uh, as contrasted with the rapacious quack. The rapacious quack is holding a slab of bacon because the verse that accompanied the print often um, went as follows. The rapacious quack quite that vexed to find his patient poor and so forsaken, a thought soon sprung into his mind to take away a piece of bacon. Well, the color there gets us a few bucks a few years in the market, but this is the kind of thing that accompanied the rapacious quack. And here's another example. 
of the rapacious, right? To another companion. So people would, in a sense, frame both those things to see the contrast between good and bad. But again, the the Indians doesn't exactly tell you why they were good or why they might have been considered bad. Now there are many physicians and people who are active in the medical field over the years who have been the source of uh, examples of what a good physician would be. Louis Pasteur being one, the French, and many, many, the French did many, many images and photographs, prints. Here he's shown in his laboratory. But he, like, like many of the other uh, good examples of the time, were also subjected to the caricaturists who showed them in other guises, being but one example. William Osler, a uh, Canadian physician who became very famous in the United States and later in England, wrote a very wonderful, important treatise on the practice of medicine, as well as many other books. A very eminent book collector and an example of a time in our history when people like Osler were, in a sense, canonized and thought very well of compared in a sense to the way uh, physicians might feel they are treated today. They're not the godlike figures that they were in the past. Uh, and also has become a stellar example for people like that who seem to consider him almost uh, a medical saint. But it is not wholly positive <laughs> things all the time. When Osler uh, was, was leaving Johns Hopkins where he was one of the four founding physicians, to go to Oxford as a Regis professor, he made he made a uh, he gave a talk in which he used an example from a book that Anthony Trollope had written called The Fixed Period. The idea of Trollope was that in this society he was writing about, society was writing about, when a man reads 60, it would be assumed that his productive days are in a sense over. And he might as well go off to an island for a year, and afterwards they would give him a dose of chloroform and he got away with it. Oster used this as an example, somewhat tongue in cheek, but the reporters who were there assumed that this was, in a sense, what he was advocating, and it made the front pages of newspapers throughout the country, and people wouldn't leave him alone. There was a song sheet, Oster was. Uh, this is the of the bit where you see the man age 60 is now ready to take the chloroform which is holding his left hand as trouble had recommended. The example, the, the, the prime iconography example of this sort of thing in, in the print world is this engraving by a German artist named Ivo Salihan done in the 1940s, 1920s. Um, Salinger had a sister who was deathly ill, and his, the idea for being deathly ill and her fighting for her life was the origin of the thought he had to make this engraving. You see the heroic physician fighting with death over, over the patient who is usually a, a nude woman, as in this case. But in a sense, it gives a heroic feeling of, of what the physician should be. And obviously, this is the kind of a subject that is very attractive to physicians. And 
it's not surprising that if you look at the book plates of some collectors, that, that what they want on the book plate is just this sort of image. In these two cases, all the artists did was reproduce the Salyer print. But it, it spawned a number of variations and continues to spawn a number of variations in book plates, uh, which take off from what the Salyer had done. Here are a couple of examples that usually the battle that's going on between the physician and death is such that the physician has some kind of an implement he's using to ward off death. Sometimes it's a cluster pipe, as Michael said before, or it may be a, a syringe, or it may be an x-ray machine or something like that. Um, there's a heroic example on, on the right there, again using the, uh, the patient and the frozen death. The battle that goes on between the doctor and death is sometimes, uh, going, sometimes going to one of the two combatants and sometimes to another of the two combatants. You don't know. Here's, here's another two examples with a, a radiologist trying to scare death away. And uh, we even have a, a book, uh, a book collector who, who wanted the book late, I certainly enjoy it in such as this. Uh, Charlotte Pat uh, has a big hand up to, to keep that away. Beyond the book plates, this sort of an image, a metaphor for the battle against death, well, it was one that impressed the patent medicine manufacturers. Here are just a few examples. The, um, the, king of the, the king of the blood is one where uh, disease is being attacked. The uh, Hunt's remedy, the square one at the bottom, was the prototype of a, a United States postage stamp that was issued about six or seven years ago. Using that as a model for what I think then was a 39 cents stamp. Then again, we've had since where the doctor is particularly accompanied by that. There's not a battle going on here, but it's sort of like the Hogarth idea of the, the artist's example where the doctors go and get out before the time. This is all in sharp contrast to the earlier depictions in the series of prints about uh, the dance of death, in which when death arrived, that, that's it. There's not much anybody can do about it. You were just a mourner. And the, the, the prototype is a book published by Holbein in 1838, in which there were 41 different uh, trades, professions, Offices from the king and the cardinal and the baker of the butcher and so on, on down, each being shown in, in a, a scene in which they were doing something when death appeared. These were accompanied by a Latin statement at the top and a French verse at the bottom. This one is the doctor, one of the 41 in Holbein's Days of Death. The, the, the verse, the statement at the top says that death brings him a hopeless patient and bids him cure himself. 
the contrast, the arrival of death, and, that, and that's the end, versus the fact that it is now potentially possible to do something about it. And the physician and, and death are fighting over, over, the, what ha- over the results of what happens to a certain patient. When, the, 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 the idea occurred to me to try to find out when this change came through. If you look at what the Salagers print depicted in 1920 versus the whole 16th century, there must have been some moment at which people began to think otherwise, that there was hope that medical science might do something. For somebody, instead of the inability to do anything, I try to trace this back. I go as early as, as finding two British caricatures by an artist named Collins in the 1780s. This one is called Death Too Many for the Doctor. And there was a companion, this is Death Too Many for the Doctor, the other one is a Doctor Too Many for Death. It shows a doctor with a patient and a number of figures that he's trying to combat, sometimes successfully, sometimes not. Or in this case, the doctor's too many for death. He's getting rid of death with the equivalent of the pipe twice the pipe. Um, I don't know how successful. The earliest I've been able to go back to and look at these images is a response to in 1771 that was published in the German city of Wittenberg, which shows a botanical garden. And in it, on the lower left, you can see the detail. The botanist is frightening death away. I suppose, in a sense, the, the metaphor for what the image shows is the fact that we now have uh, plants that are in the garden that can be used for people's health, which will mean that death's arrival will not always be totally successful. Um, now, to go beyond this, there are over the course of time, I found prints that talk about good doctors and bad doctors, heroic physicians, and rapacious quacks, if you will. Let me give let me give a couple of examples. This one deals with Napoleon in the in the, the Louvre. This painting is in the Louvre by an artist named Baron Rowe, which shows some of Napoleon's soldiers in his this Egyptian campaign who had caught the clay, and they were removed from the body of troops and put together in a place where they were trying to recover. And Napoleon came, and in a Christ-like way, he touched, he touched the patients as though he was going to cure them. And it's, it's a rather heroic image. A copy of it is in the Boston Museum of the Fine Arts. It might probably have been a cartoon that Diamond Road used to make this painting. And there's also a popular print image of the same scene showing Napoleon touching the play patients and by the touch curing them of the illness. After the uh, after this event, Napoleon and his French troops went up the coast of what is now Israel to a place near Acre where they met the Turks. And the Turks pushed, began to push them back. And when the French troops came back to Jaffa where this scene took place, 
Napoleon was faced with uh, a difficult challenge. If he left the patient, the, the plague patients there, and took his troops away, the Turks would massacre them. If he took those patients with him, they would infect the other troops. So not, not finding either of these solutions to be attractive, he decided he had them poisoned. Put them out of the misery. Which would be a lot better than having the Turks massacre. So he called in his physician, uh, his name was Dejanet, and he told Dejanet that he wanted him to administer laudanum to the, to the play patients. Um, and of course, the physician said to Napoleon, Sir, I am a physician and my role in life is to save people and I don't know how to do it. And so Napoleon called in his pharmacist, Mene Royer, who did administer laudanum, and many patients died. How many of you don't know? Uh, there, was a, there was a book by a French writer who, who discussed the various estimates of how many perished because of the poisoning, and it ranges anywhere from zero, which the French say they wouldn't poison anybody, to 580, which the British said. And there are many other French prints of the Napoleon touching the play patients. And this is a George Cruikshank print uh, that the British used of poisoning the sick of Joplin. You see in this one event the difference between the propaganda machine of the French, who used the event to extol Napoleon as a person who has the power of touch, versus the British, who wanted to vilify him in every way they could, and use the incident to talk about the poisoning as one of many episodes of his murdering people. And beware of Napoleon, beware of the French. And in particular, the British were very concerned when there was a potential uh, invasion of the French in 1803, went from 1803 really to 1805. And there were many invasion broadsides made by the British and put up throughout the British Isles to warn the people about uh, the, the potential invasion the French were expected to make. And they used every event in Napoleon's history of evil things he had done. And this broadside, which is, I've seen all the potential broadsides, there were a couple hundred of them that were made, I've seen maybe 25 or 30. And it's the only one I've seen that had engravings at the top, one of which, the one on the right, pertains to this event of poisoning the sick. And many of the other broadsides, this poisoning episode would have been mentioned, but not specifically illustrated in any way. And this is poisoning the French soldiers. Uh, and the physician says, I won't do it. Uh, he says, I thank my God I do not possess the qualities that are necessary to do this sort of thing. That makes a great man. And the apothecary quotes a line from Shakespeare, my poverty, but not my will, in sense. And there were other prints that gave further examples of what, what Napoleon had done. And this one on the shield, there are six such events 
And the one in the poison that said, I am amplified on the right. What did you see? Uh, another physician that appeared in many of the British prints was Anthony Addington, who later became Lord Sidney. He was not, he was usually portrayed as a physician because he had no, uh, no, no qualities that people could caricatures to jump upon, but his father was a physician. So they used this as uh, a characteristic for Addington. He later became Lord Sidney. And he was the Home Secretary of England during the potential divorce of George IV from Queen Caroline. We had an exhibition at the Royal Club here about 15 years ago about the divorce. And in many of the prints, uh, Sidney appears with his Chrysler pipe in his pocket or holding it. And uh, what, what, what was in the print I just showed, the doctor just did this show the pills. This is probably the only thing for which Addington was known during the three years he was prime minister. He was the first prime minister to start an income tax in Great Britain to see what kind of popular figure he would have become. But in many other characters, he appears at the time of the divorce. Here he is a nurse in the, the cradle hymn, an internet syringe is hanging close to the floor, soft diagram. Here he is. Uh, has an order on top of his head as one of the three people on stage in this critical panorama of the times. In this, he's attending George IV. George IV had this brilliant at Brighton done in the uh, style, uh, Oriental style, and here he is, the great Pasha himself. And, at, and Lord Sidney has all this blue gown, never the syringe again. And finally, he's the crack doctor in the middle of the top of these blockheads, all of whom are supporters of George IV and this potential divorce. So he was not considered a, a very benevolent position in any way. Not only the British did this, but the French the same thing. This was a Daumier cartoon of a man who was named, his name is Louis Vermont, who was at the time the editor of a newspaper that rivaled the newspaper Domier worked for Charlotte. He was a he was a physician and a patent medicine manufacturer who had scrofula of the neck. He's always shown with the cravat around his neck. Here he is offering the solution. Even in English it's the same the solution is a, is a medical form, a liquid form, and solution solves the problem. Here he has the solution to Francis problem. The presidency of the 18 1850 1850 should be for 10 years instead of 40 years. But, but they the change is who's better one at the time. And here he is again, Dr. Vermont, offering other prescriptions and solutions to France. And here he is at St. Sebastian, which is Quebec, being attacked by the Charivari Domier's newspaper. And then I come to a British patent medicine manufacturer who was not a doctor, but who was, who coined himself a name, he was the hygienist. His name was James Morrison. And he had, he had developed a product for sale which was called Morrison's Pills. Morrison's Pills were strong laxatives. Uh, the, the formula for the laxatives varied over time. 
And he claimed that Marxist goes for good for everything. And his reason for saying that good for everything was because his theory was that there's really only one disease, which is impure blood. And if we can cure up the blood, we'll cure the disease. Like a smallpox, or whether it be a broken bone, or whether it be cholera, or whatever it was, Morrison's pills would cure it. Here was the manifesto of statement of the principles of Morrison's hygienic system using only vegetable pills. They came in two sizes, number one and number two. Number two was twice the dosage of number one. And he said if one more could take two or two more more could take four. <laughs> but not surprisingly, people died for this kind of treatment. I mean, we have, there were people taking you know, 500 or 600 pills. And Thomas Wakeman, who was the editor of The Lancet, an important British journal, went after Morrison and did what he could to do him in. There were many prints published at the time, both pro Morrison, this was the Morrison people published this print, Medical Professions of Medical Murder, in which they cited case after case, taken out of context when important writers would write something about the evils of the medical system. Whereas the caricatures showed what happened to this man. He took 400 and some boxes of Morrison's pills and got caught, of the vegetable pills and got caught in the rain. <laughs> <laughs> well, not surprisingly, there was a song about Morrison's pills, the verses of which you have in front of you now. And I have to digress to offer a musical interlude, which I think you need after listening to me for some time, by the lawyer quartet. He's going to play the first and last verse of Morrison's Pills, and you will be able to follow it. Scott and Karen Cummings are uh, musicians on the, on the banjo and the guitar. Can everybody hear me okay? As Bill said, we are the Grolier Club String Quartet. I'm Scott Clemens. This is my wife, Karen. The remaining two members of our quartet will be joining us um, sometime in February. <laughs> and we're delighted to be here for no other reason than this is probably the first time that the hallowed halls of the Grolier Club's main exhibition hall have ever rung with the sound of claw hammer banjo. And after what is about to happen, it may be the last time. So you may be here on a historic occasion. Uh, you have the lyrics in front of you. We'd be delighted to have you join us for nothing else, at least the chorus. So let me teach you the chorus real quick. You'll see it there. It's Pills, Pills, Morrison's Pills. And then the last line of the verse, the they fly for comfort to Morrison's Pills. So let me sing that and sing along if you feel up to it. You didn't know that your week of rare book school would involve singing along to a banjo, but you never know what could happen in the, within the walls of 47 and 60th Street. So the chorus goes like this. Pills, pills, more sons, pills. Could they fly for comfort to Morrison's pills? All right, sing it with me one time. Pills, pills, more sons, pills. Could they fly for comfort to Morrison's pills? You'll know when your part comes up. You may talk as you will of the good olden times, but 
about uh, Dr. Eisenbach, and not only in Germany, but in France as well. And even uh, here, a, a song that every uh, school student knows in Germany about Dr. Eisenbach, which has become a sense of classic, uh, has appeared. This is part of a series of 12 scenes from the events of Dr. Eisenbach here, measuring a woman who wants to go, a child who wants to go tour and, and amputate and so on. But the music for Dr. Eisenbach is also very catchy, and we just passed out some verses, and again, the Gloria uh, Quartet, brought back by great acclaim, I must say, from Parkinson's where they appeared before titled Kings, Princes, and Royalty, articulated in some of my modernized CDs will be on sale afterwards in the lobby. <laughs> Does anyone know this tune? This is familiar to anyone? This is actually a quite popular folk tune in Germany, even to this day. You have the lyrics. Here's what, again, this is the audience participation part, so you have to sing along. You don't have to sing along Auf Deutsch if you don't want to, but sing along the, uh, the English side as well. And when we get there, pay attention to the lyrics in that middle part, because I think it really captures the essence of uh, Dr. Eisenbart's magic. Of uh, a, a very good friend of mine, who 
we usually discovered each other in the early 1970s. He was a collector of exactly the same kind of things I was. So we were separated at birth. And when he passed away two years ago, I, I bought his collection and have amalgamated it with mine. Well, not surprisingly, there were many duplicates in this collection. This is an example of just one. Not only the duplicates of prints he had and I had, but because he did not have any kind of a database and never used a computer, he kept buying the same print over and over again. <laughs> and in this, this case of Napoleon III, on the, on the, the, it's in the Place Vendôme in Paris, um, he, had, he had 11 or 12 uh, two different versions of this print called the Chateaumont, singular or plural, and he, he had that many. So consequently, I had a lot of duplicates. Um, another lesson, and, and what, what does one do with the duplicates, which I'll come to in a minute, but another lesson I learned from this is that, that um, these images mean different things to different people. Uh, I have a daughter who's a graphic designer who writes a blog. And in this blog called Designer Table, about a month ago, she posted this image of a poster that I had hanging up in the house in which we lived when she was growing up. And she wrote as follows. The title of what she wrote was, Can Graphic Design Make You Cry? <laughs> she wrote, I grew up surrounded by pictures of drama and terror and death. My house was filled with oversized, captivating posters like the one above, in which fear and frolic were provocatively conjoined through pictures and words. That they were propaganda was meaningless to me. After all, I was a child with no money or independence or power of my own. So exercising any suggested behavior prompted by a poster's message was out of the question. But surely the applied cautionary tip becomes sexually promiscuous and you will contract syphilis and die? Could not have been lost on my well-intentioned parents. Still, these rapey contracts of massive typography and later image with the visual hallmarks of my immediate orbit, literally finding my passage from the reliable safety of home to the untold mysteries of the outside world and providing what I would later come to realize was my introduction to graphic design. And to me, I put the poster up for, for not for combating material disease because I like the poster. I thought it was an interesting poster. You have a skeleton of death and a loving couple there. But obviously, for a child of mine, it's completely different. <laughs> and so is the same thing about all the different things. To me, this is a collection in which everything has some connection with medicine. No matter how tenuous, sometimes, sometimes it's, it's uh, the main part of it, other times it's a, it's a little part of it. So when I told Terry Bellinger about the collection, and I have a lot of duplicates, he said, yeah, okay, come get some, can I get some? He said, <laughs> if you have three, it's better than having two. If you have five, it's better than having four, because then each person in the class will get a different media of how prints are made, could have their own copy. So Terry came a couple of times and took a lot of things, which is out of school. And when I was discussing it with a friend of mine who's a professor at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, he was Sally Briggs. He also wanted to come, and he must have taken over 500 of these prints, and now Penn has an even bigger collection than Terry has in their books. 
And over the course of the last three years, uh, with this collection, I've given, I've given uh, duplicates from this collection and others, mine and Pierre's, to 21 different institutions. And uh, something very nice about it. On Monday, I went to the Zimmerlein Museum at Rutgers, and I was, I was taken for lunch. I was taken to the private exhibition by the director and several of the curators. I was given a gift when I left of a catalog of Vice Guide. So people know this. Anyway, uh, it has been a fruitful exercise, and I'm happy to see some of these prints which are important to me for one reason, find happy ones for other reasons. <laughs> Any questions for me or the musicians will be doing that to Yeah. One of the book plates that you showed had a musical line at the top. And I was wondering how that related to the image of death and the position in the <coughs> I don't know specifically what it was, but when, the, when, when somebody wants a book to go to the artist, the artist will say, well, what are your interests? What? And, and try to get some of them on the book book. This is true about contemporary books, like for the last 50, 60 years, not the older ones, which are mostly Veralda and Coates of Arms. Obviously, the collector was into a composer, perhaps, or was a composer himself or herself, and had it written on the line that way. Anybody want to call some out the musicians? Yes. Are you still collecting actively? Oh yes. I, I on Thursday I found the missing crystal. So there's some more out there, and uh, I know how to do well, so I can go. I think it's true about the seventh one. Is this preservation of this collection a concern? What do you do about it? Of course, uh, of course, it's a concern, and uh, they, things have to be very carefully handled. Light is very bad for them. They should be in acid-free environments. They should be well protected. They should be, if possible, have a map. To, to prevent, and to anybody working with them should never use ink, only use pencils that can be erased, etc. And I think it's very important, and obviously institutions care about like this. Many collectors have a description of what they do, which is a shame, because like books, <coughs> books, they just demand continual care and concern. Humidity is a problem, air conditioning is a necessity, and so on. Thousands of public health posters for AIDS alone. 
We have a collection of National Library of Medicine which surpasses 4,000. And the postal artist is always trying to implant a message in the passerby and has only seconds to do it. As to the caricatures, uh, I don't think the same thing applies because characters are almost always negative about somebody. If they're political caricatures, they're attacking. There are very few caricatures that are pro anything. One wants to see the enemy disgraced. Praise doesn't fall. So I don't think you can use these things in that way. Many of, many of the images, however, are useful for study of social history, opposition to treatment, what people thought of physicians, you know, what people thought of health care and how uh, it was administered and so on. But, so I think it's sporadic as to whether it works or not that way. And many of these things can be loved or not loved for aesthetic reasons at all. Or as I said, people see in them many, many different there's an ex exhibition out in Princeton in the Firestone Library of the largely popular, popular French popular prints, many of which I gave them. And I had them because there's some medical reason. There's no medical reason mentioned for any of these prints on display. They're there for children. Children to appreciate. Thank you very We few, we happy, happy few, to have been at the first and perhaps, perhaps the only ever in the history of time function of rare book school at which a banjo was played. <laughs> the sesquiquintet deserves our thanks. <laughs> Eric and the Brolier Club, of course, but most especially Bill for his highly stimulating talk. Thank you, Bill. Please join us in a collation follow. Thank you.